Um, good morning. It's good just to worship, to worship God together and to be together this morning. Uh, Pastor Matt just finished up a series on, uh, the title of the series was The Most Significant Place on Earth. And um, so I asked him if I could kind of take a spin off of that today. Uh, He said, actually, why don't you just put a bow on what he's already done? And I didn't think I could do that. So I asked him, would it be okay if I just kind of, kind of took a twist off of what you, off of what you've already done? Um, I just really appreciated his teaching on the the most significant place on earth is the home, if Christ is central. Let me pray as we start in. Lord Jesus, it's so good to come together, to come in Your name, to be united in the Holy Spirit, together in worship of You, to receive from you. Just ask Holy Spirit this morning that you would speak, that you would penetrate our hearts, that you would enlighten us to see your glory, that we might love you more, that our hearts might be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus, even as you say in your word. So we ask for this, for clarity, for understanding, for simplicity of speech, and that your word might go forth and do its work, the work that you have set for it to do and to accomplish. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, he, so as he said, the most significant place on earth is the home, if Christ is central. And so we're going to talk about the most significant place. If you see in the title, there's... Um, some quotes around that place being the church, the most significant place on earth being the church, but the church is not a place. It's not a building. We often refer to that. Our culture refers to that. I'm going to the church. I'm trying to change that vocab, that the way I use that term in my own life, because it begins to change the way I think about God's people. The church isn't a place that we have to come to experience God, although we do experience him here as we gather together. It's not a location I have to go to. God is with us. Right? I don't have to, I don't have to come. Uh, sorry, the church isn't a place where I, like a pastor would, would come and I have to receive counseling at the church. The church, again, is the body of believers. And so I, we're going to talk about the church being the most significant place on earth, being the people of God this morning. We're going to spend a lot of time in the, most of our time in the book of Ephesians. Uh, in Acts... Paul talks about, with some very intellectual people, um, he talks about God. And he says this about God in Acts 17. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So again, God doesn't dwell in a place where man builds for him. God indwells a people. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 2, where he talks about how, in, how through the Holy Spirit, God is building a dwelling place for himself in Jesus. So we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all together right there. In Jesus, people are united Through the Holy Spirit, God is building us up together into a dwelling place for God. 
Now, as mentioned, uh, today is Pentecost Sunday. And uh, Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. And we see that early in the book of Acts. And Pentecost, the, the feast, that the Jewish feast that coordinates with that or connects to that is the Feast of Firstfruits. The Holy Spirit was given as a gift. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem till you receive the power from on high. And so the disciples are waiting in, up in a room, set apart. They're, they're scared. And God sends a gift of the Holy Spirit to empower them, and they go out and speak with boldness. The, first, the Feast of Firstfruits, they had, a, they had a, a harvest, and they took the firstfruits of that, and they gave that to God. And so the picture here for us, for us, is that God has given the Holy Spirit to the firstfruits of his church that he's building. And then we see soon after that, thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus. So that's the picture we have of Pentecost. And so we give God thanks for the Holy Spirit that he's given not only to the people then, but to every believer today. Jesus even tells us in, in Luke chapter 11 that he shows us a picture of a father and a son. And he says, as human fathers, we know how to give good gifts to our children. He says, how much more does the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who continue to ask and to continue to seek and continue to knock? And so the Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhead, of the Trinity, that we are to seek to ask for, it says in Ephesians, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, a continual filling. And so we rejoice in the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. And so this, this picture of God through the Holy Spirit is building up for himself a dwelling place. And this is, to me, very mysterious. How, how is it possible, God, that you don't live in a building, but yet through people, you're making a dwelling place for yourself? I started thinking a little bit about mystery, and I, was, I went online to see what makes a good mystery. I, I'm not a huge mystery reader, although it's, I'm intrigued by many books or movies. Um, but they say in a, in a mystery, you want to have a problem at the beginning. It starts with a problem, with an issue. And that problem, uh, the answer to that problem is very dark and clouded. There's darkness over that. And the Bible speaks of darkness. I'm going to read a few passages He says in Isaiah 60, verse 1 and 2, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness the peoples. In Isaiah 9, he says, people walk in darkness and dwell in darkness. And in John 3, he says, people love the darkness because their works were evil. So we have this darkness element that is in this world that we live in. So we have, I want you to keep in mind darkness because we're going to revisit that as we tie all this in uh, later on. Uh, The second piece of a good mystery is that you have to have clues. The author or whoever's telling the story needs to be able to continue to give clues that will keep people wanting to know more, and they'll keep people guessing and hypothesizing. What's what's the solution? What's going to happen? So that you're reading, it's like, oh, I know. I know what's going to happen. You're like, no, you don't. You don't don't know what's going to happen. Watching movies, people are like, oh, I got it, I got it. And you're like, no, you don't. You're going to be way off. So we continue to give clues continue to get, keep us guessing. And then usually at the end, there's this huge twist. Like, whoa, I never saw that coming. I did not picture that. Just a surprise ending. And so we're intrigued by mysteries. And the Bible speaks of mysteries of God. It talks about how there's a grand mystery that's been hidden in God for all ages. And I would say even back to the beginning, it's been hidden in God. And God every day is revealing this grand mystery 
to us. So we want to have eyes to see. And my hope this morning is that as that mystery is unraveled for us and what God is doing, that we would just be amazed by God. That like, like a mystery, we're, we're surprised by the ending. We don't know the ending yet of what God is doing. But we're seeing clues of what he's doing. And we're seeing a picture of this ending that he's given us through his word. And so we might marvel together at the grandness of God, at the wisdom of God, as he's unfolding this mystery before us. So we're going to spend time in Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, kind of high level a little bit. So if you will, I'm going to be bouncing into a couple portions, but specifically in Ephesians. So you can open up to the book of Ephesians, and we'll, we'll begin there. So the first mystery that you have, as you see in your notes, is the mystery of God's grace. There's three mysteries. Like I said, there's a grand mystery of what God is doing, but we're going to focus it on three specific uh, elements of that mystery that he's doing. So the, the, the mystery of God's grace. <clears throat> and a problem that we know in our, in our world and in our life is separation and sin. Separation from God. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's Satan, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the picture of our problem. Adam and Eve in the beginning sinned. They disobeyed God. They chose to follow Satan and to, to give way to their flesh and what their eyes thought was good. And so sin, be, sin brought forth separation for us. So we experience that today in separation from God. Many of you have, know that, understand that as part of your testimony of what God has done in your life. You saw where you really were. Dead, it says. Following Satan. And not only do we experience the effect of Adam and Eve's sin in our nature... At the same time, it's our choice. God says we gave way to our passions, the passions of our flesh, the desires of the body and the mind. We were in rebellion to God. We are running from God. That's the problem we have, both our separation as well as our desire, the desire of our heart to run from him. And so we know that in our lives today. We understand that separation. So there's some clues that God is giving us. We have problems, we have clues, and we have ending, twist ending. So the clues that God is giving us, two texts. In Isaiah 55, 6, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the righteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, that he will abundantly pardon. So in the same time, we have this rebellion, and God somehow in the Old Testament saying, Well, seek me, come to me. We don't understand that. What, God, what are you going to do? What are you doing? That we could all of a sudden come to you when we don't want to. In Isaiah 53, he says, he talks about a servant of God who will make many people righteous and the servant will bear the iniquities of people. So there's some clues that we see that God is showing us. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. So we're going to dive in right here as we start looking at this ending. What is God going to do? And so verse 7, he says, In him, he's talking about Jesus, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It is only in Jesus that we can be restored unto God. It's only in Jesus that we can have forgiveness of sin, the sin both that we received by nature and the sin by choice that we have walked in. 
And he continues and says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. The word lavish means to continue to give abundantly, to continue to give more and more and more. It's a continual process. There was a wedding shower up on Thursday night, and I asked somebody, what's the history behind behind the word shower? I never understood that growing up. I'm not, why are people going to shower somewhere? Um, And uh, somebody said wisely, said, well, I think what it is is they're showering gifts upon them upon the bride and upon the groom on their wedding day. So they're just this, just this blessing of gifts. That's what God is doing, but even more so. He's lavishing upon us the riches of his grace. It says grace is unmerited favor from God. Nothing that we can do deserves it. We can't do anything with God that he would say, okay, here's my grace. No, it's just the riches of God's abundant grace that he's lavishing upon us. And so God is reconciling people to himself and he's giving of his giving of himself and his grace and then he continues and says in the wisdom and insight of god he made known to us the mystery of his will so here's the first mystery what's this mystery the mystery of your will god what are you doing according to his purpose which he set forth in christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth the mystery that the first mystery of god's grace is that he is uniting everything in, in himself. In his, in his son, Jesus, he's bringing unity together. Or he's bringing us to, to be unified with God. Restoring of brokenness, restoring of relationship that we have not had with him. That is the mystery that God is unfolding. And he says, in Jesus, he says later on in chapter 2, he says, um, for through him, we both, people, have access in one spirit. There's the Holy Spirit again. We have access in one spirit to the Father and restored relationship. And then he says later on in chapter 3, in Jesus we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We have access to God. There's restoration in that relationship. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, read with me. We have this bleak picture in in verses 1 through 3 of who we are as mankind and who we are before God in our relationship. And then the most significant, one of the most significant words here is the word but. But God didn't leave us where we were. But God, because of the riches of his mercy, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So God has taken us in our relationship and he's restored us. And after this, That would be good enough. If God just restored our relationship, that would be good enough. And right after this, he continues. And he says, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is an awesome picture of what God has done more than just restoring relationship. But in chapter 1, he talks about how God's mighty power in in his work was seen in Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in, in the heavenly places. And how all authority and how everything is given to Jesus. Everything's under his feet in subjection to him. And God says, not only were you dead, but I came in my love for you and pursued you. And I restored relationship with you. And not only that... But he said, I've also raised you up and seated you in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. And then he continues and says, so that, this is why God has done that. So that 
in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Again, we see the riches of God's grace bestowed upon us, not only in saving us and, re- and, and bringing reconciliation and relationship, but giving us in Jesus authority over things that Jesus has authority over. We're in him, right? And so God continues so that, God continues to show the riches of his grace in kindness towards us, continues to show us his grace from here forward for all eternity. That is the mystery that God is unfolding. And that is who we are and can be in Jesus. And so, do you feel far from God? Do you feel like you, you've sinned and, and there's brokenness there and you don't know what to do? Maybe you've never met God before. Maybe you don't know him. Maybe you know him just as this being that's somewhere out there. But you don't know him personally. Your relationship has not been still restored with him. Today can be the day. Come to me, Jesus has said. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Today is the day that you can receive restoration. Jesus has come to give you that. So that's mystery number one. Mystery number two. We see also in our life not only sin and separation from God, but we see brokenness in relationships with people. Adam and Eve in the garden sinned. Find it interesting how in their relationship with God, it says God came in the cool of the day and called out to Adam, who was hiding with his wife. Where are you, Adam? Like God maybe didn't know where they were. Hide and go seek, right? No, God knows. God knew where they were. I think a, a huge picture of that is probably more, but a picture of that is there's a separation now between God and man. After that, Adam and Eve had, had sons, Cain and Abel. Many of you know the story. So they offer sacrifices to God. God receives one and not the other. In that, now all of a sudden there's jealousy and bitterness and anger. There's hatred towards a brother. And what does he do? He kills his brother. And that's the, that's, that's the con- beginning, I think, of our brokenness. I mean, you see brokenness in Adam and Eve and the curse of what God has um, placed upon them. But we see the, the greatest extent of killing a brother. We see that brokenness there, and we see it today in this world. I have a hard time watching the news often because you flip on the news and it's so-and-so died on 7th Street and so-and-so did this and ISIS is running around killing everybody. And it's good to be informed, but it's hard because we see the brokenness of our world. It is ever before us. We see brokenness in our, in our families even. Brokenness in husbands and wives. We see brokenness between parents and children, mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. We see brokenness in children and children. I, I think about the day when parents pass away and inheritance is laid before children. And now there's bitterness and there's anger and there, people are fighting over money and stuff, right? We see that brokenness all over in our world. And so what are the clues that God is giving us that there's going to be some res- restoration of physical relationship with each other? God chooses a people, Israel, in the Old Testament. And he says, I didn't choose them because they were mighty in power, they were greater than other nations. I chose them because I wanted to show my love to them. And I wanted to keep my promise to their forefathers. So we think, well, maybe what God is doing is he's selected a people to show his love to you that they might experience the blessing of restored relationship with him, or with each other and with him. But everyone else, not sure what's going to happen. But later on in Isaiah, there's another clue that we see that something bigger is going to happen. He says in chapter 19, In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, enemies of each other, fighting against each other. 
And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship God with the Assyrians. In verse 20, he says, and he will send them a savior and defend them and deliver them. God is going to take enemies and make them unified together that they can be in the same place and in that they can worship God. Restoration horizontally with each other, restoration vertically with God. So let's look at this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. You have Jews and Gentiles. You have markings of the body that are distinguishing between the two, circumcision and uncircumcision. And he says in verse 12, remember that at that time you Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Gentiles, you have nothing. You don't have the promises of God. You haven't been shown his love and his favor as the Jews have. And then he says in verse 13, he continues and says, But now, in Christ Jesus, again, there's Jesus. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Somehow, Jesus is going to bring restoration with him and with God. And then he says this right after. For in him, in Jesus, is our peace. He is our peace, and he's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The things that were erected, the walls that were erected both between Jews and Gentiles, Jesus has, has crushed, has broken down that wall so that it doesn't remain so that in him there might be peace. In Jesus, there might be peace. And he continues and in, uh, in verse 16. He says, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so we have two groups of people that hated each other, that are hating each other, that then come together into unity. And in verse 19, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then you have in verse 6 of chapter 3, this is more explicit, says the mystery. This mystery that he's been showing us about is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We have unity. God is going to do something great in bringing unity in his son, Jesus. So he's taking people who are broken, people who hate each other, hate God, restoring them to God, and at the same time in himself, he's, he's healing brokenness with each other. He's building. What he's doing is he's building his church. That's what God is doing. He's building his church. He's taking people from very different backgrounds, very different walks of life, people who basically have nothing in common. Even look at Jesus' disciples. You have a zealot who wants to take over Rome and see the kingdom of God come. You have a tax collector who's stealing from people, his own brothers and sisters, that people hate. You have lay fishermen, and he brings them all together. People from different walks of life. He gives them unity. I love John 17 in Jesus' prayer. He prays something I talk about so often. I want it to be a mark of my life. He prays, God, give them unity. Not only my disciples, but those whom will believe through their testimony. Give them unity so that, this is why Jesus prays for unity for us, so that 
people, the world might see that you've sent me, that you've sent Jesus, and that they might know that you love me and love them, that they might see the love of God. In our unity, that displays to the world around us, to this community, the love of God. Our unity together with other churches, with people who believe the Bible is true, who are following Jesus, who want to surrender to him and say, live in me that I might die to myself. We are the church, and the unity that we experience in this community and within this church will declare the testimony of God sending his son and God loving the world, loving us. They see God's love through us. That is a powerful picture of what the church of God does. And then think about this. What about the walls that we've erected between each other? The walls that Jesus has come to die to break down and we erect them between each other to the extent that maybe someone in this section can't even sit in this section because so-and-so is over there. What is that displaying? What picture is that displaying to the world? What picture is that displaying to our community? Or, well, we can't be with those people because those people say this. Those people divide. Those people say this, and we don't exactly believe that. Okay, there's things that we want to disagree on, but there's a lot of things that we need to find unity in with other churches, with the real bride of Christ, the global bride of Christ. So let, in our, in our unity, as we find unity, as we focus on the things that we can be unified in, the true things that don't go against the word of God, that displays God's love by the way that we live. And so if you have brokenness in relationships here, if you need to extend forgiveness to someone here, if you need to, if you need to seek forgiveness from someone here because of brokenness, because of walls that you've maybe set up, do that. Jesus has come to give us peace with each other. Jesus has come to give us unity so that in that unity we might declare him. We might declare his love. We might declare that he's come. The third piece, the mystery of God's work through the church. The mystery of God's work through the church. This is a little less of a problem and more of a process. How, God, in restoring relationship with people and in restoring people in relationship with each other, how are you going to get that message out? What about the church? Is the church just meant to come and just to be here together and then we just go out and do our thing and we're not the church anymore, but when we come back together, now we're the church? Is that what you've intended, God? So that people have to come into this place in order to meet with you? As we said, that's not true. This, isn't, this building isn't the church of God. So we see some clues. Deuteronomy chapter 4. God says, follow my commands to his people. Follow my commands because in doing so, people who aren't my people will look in and see you. And when they see you following my commands, they will say, how great a God those people worship. That he's so near to them when they call upon him. People from the outside looking in. And then in Jeremiah 29, when, the, when God's people were sent into exile, he sent them into exile. And he said, when you go into exile, don't separate yourselves from the people that you're exiled to. Instead, live with them. Be with them. Seek, it says, seek the welfare of the city. Seek for the city to be blessed. And he says, pray on behalf of the people, behalf of the city, because in the blessing of the city, in the welfare of the city um, being greater, you too will experience that blessing. 
as you come into the city and as you pray for the city and you, as you bless the city by the way that you live, as I bless the city, you too will be blessed. That's what God is doing. And then we see another clue. Jesus comes, bringing God's kingdom. And it says in, in Luke chapter 4, he says, I've come. Jesus said, I have come to preach good news to the poor. I've come to preach the gospel to the poor. I've come to give freedom to those who are in captivity, to break the chains of bondage. I've come to give sight to the blind that they might see. He says in Isaiah 61, I've come to heal the broken hearts of people. And then he says also the last one being, I've come to set the oppressed free. Those who are oppressed by demons, I come to set them free. And Jesus did that in himself. Awesome places like just right after that nearly, he, all these people came to him and it says he healed all of them. That's the blessing. That's the blessing of God's kingdom. So we see, and then we see another clue. He sent out his, his disciples and he sent out his followers, 70, groups of 70, 72. He sends them out. And he says, go into all the communities. Go into all the towns. Visit all of them. Declare the gospel of the kingdom. Declare the good news of God's kingdom coming. And then he says, he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out demons. Bring the good news of God's kingdom and the effect of that kingdom. Matthew 10, Luke 9, Luke 10. You can read about those. So we're still, um, we have Jesus who then leaves. Pentecost Sunday, Jesus says, wait. He says, you will receive a counselor. You will receive one like myself. I find this amazing that Jesus, he actually says, it's better that I leave so that the Holy Spirit might come. If you were to ask me right now, would you rather have physical Jesus in this room? I would say, yes, please. But Jesus says, no, it's better that you have the Holy Spirit and not me physically with you. That is amazing to me. We have the Holy Spirit better than physical Jesus with us right now. So how is this message going to go out? Chapter 3, verse 8. Read with me. He says this. Paul is talking and he says, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, because of what I've done, because of my past life, I'm the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. There's the riches again of Christ, the riches of his grace. And to bring to light, Paul says, I'm to preach to the Gentiles and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is the mystery that's been hidden for ages in God. And he, Paul says, I'm going to tell you what the plan of God is in delivering this mystery and un- unveiling this mystery. He says it right after. He says, through the church, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was a, according to the eternal purpose he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's Jesus again. In Jesus and the eternal purposes of God that he set forth from the beginning. In Jesus, God is going to display his manifold wisdom as he builds his church. Manifold wisdom, I looked at that and it says, manifold means many-sided. The many sides of God's wisdom. When I was a kid, I asked my mom to give me this. I was hoping that we could turn the lights out and reflect a light into here and that it would sparkle everywhere. That's what it does. It's, crystal might even be better. 
Um, this isn't exactly crystal, but you can see it even kind of glimmering a little bit. You have, it's like a diamond. You have it sparkling. You have all these sides of it. As a, as a kid, my brothers and sister, my brother and sisters and I would love to sit in the window and spin this thing because when the sun would shine through it, there'd be rainbows everywhere in our, in our kitchen. It was, it was spectacular. So we would just spin this thing. We'd just watch it and watch all of these rainbows going everywhere. That's God's wisdom. The manifold wisdom. We can't even understand it. We marvel at his wisdom. He says in, in Galatians that when the time was just right, God sent his son. Born of a woman. Born under the law to redeem and to free those who are under the law. And then again, he says, he says, wait. God has a mystery that he's unveiling. Is it through the Old Testament? Is it through even in Jesus' coming? That's the epitome of what God's doing in the mystery. That's the hinge pin of everything is Jesus. We've seen that in all three mysteries. Jesus is present. And at the same time, he says, so that through the church of God, his manifold wisdom might be declared in the heavenly places, in the, over the rulers, so that the rulers and authorities might see God's wisdom. That is awesome. God is using, he, it's not displaying his wisdom only, I think, but he's not specifically displaying his wisdom to his creation, his physical, his physical world. He says the church is displaying the wisdom of God to the spiritual realms. And as this mystery is unfolding, the spiritual realm even is saying, wow, that is amazing, God, what you are doing through your church through a bunch of people. In 1 Peter, he says, he writes and he says, these things, even angels long to look into, wondering, God, what are you going to do? This is amazing. I can't wait. I'm seeing all these clues, God, of what you're doing. You're unveiling this mystery. What are you going to do through your church? Because you're using your church to show your wisdom and your glory. What an honorable position to be in church. That makes me excited. Sometimes I think, oh, it'd be sweet to have been back when Jesus was alive. That would be true. But even more so, the church, that makes me excited, church, about what God is doing, what God wants to do through us, through his people, to show, to show the many sides, to show the many sides of his wisdom. And of his glory. And we too get to marvel with the angels. God, what are you doing? This is awesome. What are you doing, God? So we still have the question, how is God going to declare this message? He's using his church, but how is he going to do that? There's a picture that we see in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. A place of worship. There was items there that were used in worship. And we're going to look at two of them. And I hope that this will encourage you, just this picture image that we don't get to, that we don't get to uh, see. I wonder if I can move this out of the way so that everyone can see. He says in Hebrews, talking about the tabernacle, he says, the things that we use in worship are only copies of the heavenly realities. That's not the best. The best is yet to be seen. The best, like a mystery, is yet to be discovered. So that's what he says. We have two items here. My wife said I should probably put dishes under them. 
Um, so we did. This is not what, so that we have the lampstand. Sorry, let me go back. In John chapter, or Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, you have the apostle John, whom Jesus is speaking to. He comes to you and says, write down all the things that you see and give them to these seven churches. And when John turns around to see the voice who's talking to him, he sees seven lampstands, and he sees, it says, one like the Son of Man. And then he finds out later that's Jesus who's speaking to him. And I want to look. He says the seven stars in his hand are the seven angels of the seven churches. And then he says the lampstand, the seven lampstands are the churches. So you have this picture of lampstand and a church. So that's why I want to show a little bit from the tabernacle here. This is not what the lampstand looked like. Okay, we have the menorah. That's, that's not even what the lampstand looked like originally. It was pure gold. It, was, it would have obviously been super heavy. And this lampstand was never to run, or the lights on this lampstand were never to go out. Once they're lit, they're to be lit always. And they're olive oil that they press and bring, to, they bring in, in the evening and in the morning. And they would keep it filled up so that it would never, so the candles would never go, go out. The, the light would never go out. Now, you have to know in the tabernacle, there's no windows. It's not like this. It'd be like if there was no windows in this place, it would just be pitch black. Right? So without this light, there's no light. You can't see anything. On the opposite side, when you enter the tabernacle, you have, you have bread. And what you have is you have six loaves of bread. This is called the table the bread of presence. This table was of pure gold. And even that is only a copy of the reality, of the heavenly realities. That's some of the greatest things that, some of the greatest riches we have in this world. And that's only a copy of what God has in his, in his heavenly realities. And so we have these six loaves. And my understanding is they were stacked like this. We have six here. Hope everyone over there can see. We have six here. And um, when people walk into the tabernacle... Because the light is shining here, they can see the bread here and the table, the bread of presence here, the show bread, is what, how some would refer to it. And the picture that I want to show is that Jesus, I'm going to read a couple passages actually. I want you just to listen to these. We're visiting light and darkness again. Okay, remember the problem is darkness. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Ezekiel 34, as a shepherd seeks out his sheep, that they have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And then we have Jesus, the shepherd. Our chief shepherd says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He is the good shepherd. And then we have the light. Here's three texts in John. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I am the light that has come into the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I have come into the world as light, 
so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is the light of God that has been sent. Jesus is the light. This is the spiritual reality. Oh, I just filled this up. There we go. Or sorry, I just, I didn't fill it up. I just checked it. Jesus is the light that's illuminating the darkness. I hope I can do this. I didn't even ask anyone. Is this okay? I just found it up there and I thought, perfect. Last night I was like, I need to find somebody with one of these. And there it was. And we even had white candles at home. So we have seven lights. And Jesus is the light of the world. And then we have the bread. We have the bread of presence. And this is what Jesus says of himself in John 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. Back in the Old Testament, God's people were in the wilderness and God gave them bread from heaven, manna, that they could make bread. God was their provision. He was the one who's providing for them. That's the picture we have here. So that when they would come into the tabernacle, the light would shine on the provision of God. The bread reminding them of the wilderness that they walked in. And then he says this, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then he says, I am the bread of life. I am this physical reality. I am the spiritual reality of this bread that is just a copy. This is the work of the church. The lampstand is the church. The light is Jesus. And the work of God's church and what he's doing, when people are in darkness and the light of Jesus shines through his church, what does it shine light on? It shines light on God's provision in Jesus. That's the picture. Jesus is both the light and is the provision of God sent from heaven. And that's the work of the church that we might manifest the light in the darkness. Not in this building, but out there in the world of darkness. So that people might see the provision of God in Jesus. Unless we think that it's only the church... Um, sorry we might feel inadequate as a church you might feel inadequate as an individual God has said in Ephesians chapter 2 that he's prepared beforehand good works for us as a church to do for you as an individual to do that would show his glory he's prepared those for you to walk in but you might say I feel pretty inadequate to do this I don't feel like I can do this. I don't feel like I can display to the nations the glory of God, the wisdom of God, and the, and the, and the showing of his son Jesus. I don't feel like I can do that. There's, there's a text in, in Corinthians that I also really enjoy because it shows God's wisdom in a way that, that you wouldn't otherwise see. He says in verse 21, he says, In God, in God's wisdom, it pleased him through the folly of what we preach, through the foolishness of what we preach, to save those who, who believe. In God's wisdom, he's using us 
He's using his church. He's using even the foolishness. It's even the misunderstanding. We can't understand the mysteries of God. We speak like we can. We can't. And yet, even what we do know, the little that we do know of what God is doing, he's using that to save people. That encourages me to, to even come up here, to stand before anyone and to speak of the things of God. Because it is, it is his pleasure. It gives him pleasure to use that to save people. There's a text at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. You can look with me. He's talking about the great love of God. And then he he talks about knowing that, knowing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. God can do more than anything that we can ask of him or even imagine of him. He says, according to the power at work within us, the Holy Spirit at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Ultimately, that is, that is what God is doing. He's reconciling people to himself. He's bringing reconciliation and restoration in relationships with people. And he's using his church. He's using us to declare to the heavenly realms his wisdom and his glory. And he continues to un- unveil this, this mystery before us. And so be encouraged, church. We are in an awesome time. We are in a time when God's kingdom continues to advance, and we are a part of that. God is using us to accomplish his glory, to show his wisdom, to accomplish his purposes. So be encouraged in what God has for you and has for us. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have placed us in such a time as this, that you have placed us in as part of your church. Thank you that through us you say that you are declaring to the world your wisdom. Thank you that through us you are showing light, the light of Jesus, the provision of your son Jesus in the darkness. Thank you that we get to be a part of that process. Just ask that you would would lift us up, that we might see that, that we might live that way. That we, would, that we would come to you in our brokenness. That we would come to be changed by you, God. And that you would change us. That you would make us new. That you would make us whole. Ask for greater love for you, greater desire to know you. For myself and for my brothers and sisters and for those whom maybe have not met you yet. Continue building your church, God, for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.